This is an ABC podcast. G'day, welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. We've heard a lot in recent months about the threat of foot and mouth disease coming into Australia from Indonesia and potentially decimating the cattle, sheep and goat industries here. That disease is most likely to come through an airport, but there's another disease that's just as serious and changing weather patterns could see it blown in from across the seas. Probably the two areas where it's the clearest are the vector-borne diseases, so mosquitoes and midges, and also parasitic diseases, so the worm-type diseases. So both of those probably do have, you know, the, the change of climate would have a direct impact. Before we get to that story, though, Kath Sullivan is here with this week's Rural News. Good morning, Kath. Great to catch you, Clint. Let's stick with biosecurity threats. What is the latest with Varolmite? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's stick with all the scary pests and disease. Look, Clint, it's been three months now since Varroamite was first detected in sentinel hives at the port of Newcastle. The exotic bee parasite is yet to be eradicated in New South Wales. Thousands of hives have had to be euthanized in what's called red zones across the state, including, quite tragically, breeding research colonies at Tokal Ag College in the Hunter. Now, while 250 hives had to be destroyed, there was some good fortune in that 48 high-value queen bees could be saved. Australian Honeybee Industry Council's Danny Laferve says the effort to achieve eradication has been pretty immense. There's a lot of surveillance happening in the Blue Zone in the general New South Wales uh, area, as well as in and around those emergency zones particularly up around Coffs Harbour and Narrabri and, and the Purple Zone around Newcastle. And we're just not finding detections of mites. So it's giving everyone a lot of confidence that it is contained to that Newcastle area and it hasn't travelled or spread too far from the original detection. And we've got a very good chance of being able to eradicate. But there's still a lot of pieces of the puzzle that need to fall into place over the next few months to give us absolute confidence that we're able to do it. In the seafood industry, a new online platform could put a few more dollars into the fishermen's pocket. Yeah, let's talk about the business side of the seafood industry. Australia's largest fish market has launched an online trading platform to allow seafood producers to, well, set their own price. It's called SFM Blue and it went live last week. Greg Dyer is the chief executive at the Sydney Fish Market and says they've been running an auction in the very early mornings there for the past 70 years, which has meant that the price suppliers get paid depends on who's in the stands. We've sought to expand the options in terms of transaction methods and in an online environment, uh, suppliers can fix a price and determine you know, the price at which they're happy to trade and online buyers can then go and access that product with some certainty and understand the value of the product that they're buying and so forth and is a very different method of trading obviously. So um, it's really just expanding the trading options mm. for, for both the suppliers and buyers. 
Kath, back around 2016, 17, 18, we were both kept very busy with a crisis <laughs> in the dairy industry. And one of the products of that crisis was a new code of conduct that governs how milk processors need to deal with their suppliers, the farmers. Fast forward to today and the competition watchdog has mm. taken action against a processor for a code violation. It's amazing, isn't it, how the wheels turn up mm. and how long we've seen this process unfold across the dairy industry. But a missed deadline could well prove very costly for the processor behind the Paul's milk brand. The federal court has found that Lactalis failed to publish milk supply agreements on its website by a June 1 deadline of this year. This is the first such deadline to be imposed under the industry's new dairy code of conduct, which you rightly state go dates back to 2016. Um, now, it is the first time that the ACCC uh, has prosecuted such a case in court, but its deputy chair, Mick Keogh, concedes the regulator hasn't won on all fronts. We'll have a look at what the judge has said and uh, we note that there is a forthcoming review of the Dairy Code, so it may be that if we think there's a reason there, uh, given what the judge has said, that we would seek to get the code adjusted to clarify that particular issue. And it's worth pointing out, Clint, that like uh, the ABC did approach Lactalis for an interview, but it declined to comment, instead saying it would carefully consider that judgment. The federal government will invest almost $50 million over four years to build a stockpile of urea, and that's a critical component of the diesel exhaust fluid commonly known as AdBlue. Clint, I can remember a time when I didn't even know what AdBlue was, but in December of last year, Australia ran dangerously close um, to running out of AdBlue. So this is a move that's been welcomed by the National Road Transport Association. AdBlue is basically an anti-pollution additive which is added to modern diesel engines. So without it, tractors, trucks, buses, utes can't run. And we did fear that there'd be major disruption to the supply chain, even more than what we've seen uh, since the pandemic. In response to this announcement from the federal government, the CEO of the National Road Transport Association, Warren Clark, says that the stockpile is great news not only for his industry, but also for the country. We'd like to see that stockpile even longer, but you've got to start somewhere, okay? So, you know, Minister Bowen's announced that they're going to put a stockpile in place. Well, that's a great start because we haven't been able to get the technical grade urea to make it. They're going to have enough of the ad blue. If you look at how long it's going to last for, we'd like to see probably six months supply of ad blue in the country, but let's take one step at a time. I think the idea about investing money into the country to make it self-sufficient is also a great idea. So all positive, all going in the right direction. And we're talking about about an extra five weeks added to the supply chain due to this stockpile. That's some good news. As you said, a nice first step. Ex-service people are gearing up to help out with another grain harvest this summer. Australian Defence Force veterans will meet around Horsham in Victoria's Wimmera next week to learn the ropes of operating harvest machinery. Yep, Operation Grain Harvest Assist is entering its second season. Um, keen observers might recall this program was conceived last year to help alleviate the harvest workforce shortage that was really exacerbated by the closure of Australia's borders due to COVID. 
Here's Gary Spencer, who's National Facilitator for the program. We only launched in August last year when it became clear from a landline episode that we had a serious problem coming up with getting the harvest in from 2020 in 2021. We got to thinking about it and uh, with a bit of consultation around the countryside with people I'd worked with in the Defence Force, uh, we decided that we would see what we could do to uh, to help to get some people who had Defence Service and get them trained up and uh, get them moving out to, to help with the grain harvest. And look, our estimation is that 250 to 300 went out across the country. It's been nearly five years since laws were changed that allowed hemp to be grown for food in Australia. And off the back of that, a bunch of Tassie farmers rushed in to plant some crops. But the money is not flowing like they'd hoped. This is an interesting one, Clint. A number of Tasmanian farmers are still owed hundreds of thousands of dollars for hemp crops that were harvested earlier this year. Many of these growers say they won't grow hemp this season and it's expected to leave a big hole in the supply that typically comes from Australia's largest commercial crop growing state. Ben Morrison is one of the growers from Tasmania's north. Last season, he grew hemp for a company called Australian Primary Hemp, which now trades on the ASX as the Sustainable Nutrition Group. Mr Morrison says he's still waiting on his payment. That's what's turned us off hemp. It's just, just always something with it. And what are you owed? It's probably $170,000. Like in our business, like we're quite reliant on that to get us through our spring period now. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's going to change our, the way we do things for the next bit. Strawberry growers would like to see us expand our vocabulary when it comes to choosing a punnet when we're down at the shops. Well, I think I could always be expanding my vocabulary, but I hadn't (laughs) thought about it in terms of berries. Clint, when you think about it, everyone's heard of a Granny Smith or a Pink Lady apple, but how many of us really know the varieties of strawberries? I don't know any. (laughs) There you go. A $7 million (laughs) joint research project is hoping to change that with hopes that a new elite strawberry variety could be developed. The University of Queensland's Associate Professor, Heather Smythe, says there's value in getting shoppers to recognise different types of strawberries. For strawberries, what we're, we're getting some consumers in to taste and, and see and, and look at a whole lot of different types of strawberry varieties and understand what the sensory qualities of those are um, so that we can then tell the breeders, well, this combination of shape, size and colour would actually be what consumers would pay a lot of money for and then allow growers to have varieties just like we have with apples where you can actually... Uh, produce varieties of strawberry and that consumers understand that they'd like this variety or that variety of strawberry. Would be nice to have one that doesn't just taste like water. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm keen to give it a go, that's for sure. Like the candy floss grapes. I've got no idea what you're talking about. Give them a crack the next time you're down at the shops. Okay, (laughs) will do. Kath, thanks so much for that wrap of Rural News. Have a great day. This week, we'll visit a community that's having some success in their fight against the feral cats that are decimating native wildlife and spreading disease. We'll meet a former finance worker who started up a blossoming family business growing and selling medicinal herbs. And we'll hear from a beekeeper who's making a home for her hives high above the ground. She's keeping them on a rooftop at the Adelaide Showgrounds, and she has a secret weapon in her work with bees maintaining a cool, calm approach. In order to work well with a hive, you have to be calm. Bees pick up 
on when you're not calm. So you have to sort of center yourself. It's like meditation almost. You really have to be mindful of what you do because one wrong tap off the box can set the bees off because they don't like the vibration and they might get upset. So it makes you work harder. So the more you focus and the more calm you are, the better it is. And the bees sort of get to know you too and they know that they can trust you. The mindful and meditative work of keeping bees, that is coming up. First today to the next chapter in a remarkable story of two men who were reunited many years after a life-saving rescue. Emma Siosian has their story. This riverside park in Taree on the New South Wales mid-north coast holds special significance for Ken Beaton. We are here on the uh, Queen Elizabeth Park in Taree. Um, where at um, my young age of about 18 months, two years, um, I had a little bit of an accident, uh, which was an, a near drowning in the river. And um, at that time, uh, my time could have been up, but uh, some young fella came along and rescued me, who was about nine years old. And he tells me that he grabbed me by the red hair and yanked me out of the river and I ran off. <laughs> so... Uh, then my father kept on informing me about this particular incident, but he could never remember the person's name um, or where they lived or anything. It was an event always remembered by both families, but they weren't in touch again after that day. And for decades, Ken Beaton hoped to find his rescuer and be able to say thank you. In 2020, he enlisted the help of local researcher from Mid Coast Stories, Janine Roberts. And so uh, the search went on and uh, Janine, with her capabilities, certainly got into it and, and really worked hard and got, got the, all the information and set up the meeting. <laughs> Hello, I'm Emma Siossian. I had the privilege of being there to record the moment that Ken Beaton was officially reunited with his rescuer, Ken Gibson, at Newcastle in 2020 when he finally got his chance to express his feelings. Well, I'm wanting to be here. <laughs> and so I, I think the simple answer of saying thank you. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> I think it's something that I've, uh, you know, even though they have kept on telling me about it, I used to have, uh, like, flashbacks during the, during the night and, uh, and uh, I don't have them anymore. So I think it was uh, uh, to honour Dad and to um, probably settle my mind. And uh, and when I met Ken, it was just like we've known one another forever. <laughs> Didn't feel like we're strangers or anything. He, he well, he is such a good person to know, um, and he was so easy to get along with. Uh, but we just sort of, you know knew one another. We had a fairly close friendship and, uh, well, uh, not fairly, it was close in the sense that uh, we didn't contact one another every day of the week or anything like that, but we made meetings and uh, met up and Ken wasn't able to travel, so uh, naturally I travelled to see him, which was fine, and um, we enjoyed those two or three hours every time we met up and uh, we uh, sort of, um, yeah, we could leave our conversation and take it back up again quite easily. Janine Roberts says it was hugely rewarding to finally bring the two Kens back together. I had goosebumps. I was so excited. I think I was talking a lot. Um, but for me, it was really rewarding because I know that Ken had been looking for him for so long. 
Recently, Ken Gibson passed away after an extended period of ill health. Ken Beaton says he was sad to say goodbye to the man who saved his life so long ago, but also glad they'd been able to connect. And their final conversation wasn't a sad one. I rang him and uh, we teed that up and we rang him and uh, the conversation was just like old times. It wasn't, you know, feeling sorry for one another or anything like that. It was, uh, and the last few words he said to me made me laugh. So. <laughs> <laughs> Finished with a joke. That's <laughs> a nice memory to have. Yeah, and only Ken would say that. <laughs> Ken Beaton has also managed to unravel something of a mystery around a badge which his dad gave to Ken Gibson as a reward after he rescued his son in 1951. Well, that was uh, a badge that Dad had got in, uh, when he was serving in Darwin in the Second World War. He wasn't actually in the army, he was in what they call the uh, Civil Construction Corps, which was part of the army, but they were all uh, people, just not trained army people. And so they were like, Dad was a carpenter, so that was one reason he was there. And they built up all the uh, defence enforcements and fuel tanks and things like that. And so he was there when the raid was on. And uh, it's not written anywhere to prove this, but Dad said uh, that um, the communication tower went down so they had to erect uh, an emergency tower and which they did and so uh, the commanding officer at the time well they couldn't give him a, uh, a war medal because it was you know they weren't soldiers and so uh, he was given this badge which um, I looked it up and it just didn't seem right and um, eventually and uh, just recently researched it I sent it off to the National Library and asked for it some research on it and it was actually a 1901 badge for the Federation of Australia. Ken Gibson you know gave you that badge back when you yeah. had your reunion and I guess that it must be that's a special memory to hold on to too oh, yes, for many yes, reasons yes. now. Well it, I, I'm glad to hold on to it because of uh, yeah, my father's memory um, and it also reminds me of Ken now. Uh, yeah. It's a, you know, a double key. Beekeeper Zandra Helbers is leading a tour of her beehives and explaining some of the science of keeping bees. And she's doing it well above ground, on the rooftop of a pavilion at the Adelaide Showgrounds during the South Australian Capital's annual agricultural show. I'm Cassandra, I'm from Cassandra's Bees. Yeah, I keep the bees here at the showground up on the roof, keep them healthy and happy. And every now and then when the show's on, I come on the tours here. G'day, I'm Eliza Burlage, and I've joined one of Sandra's tours, checking on the hives up here above the busy buzz of the showgrounds below. As well as being a beekeeper, Sandra also educates others about bees, running beekeeping courses and giving talks on bees at schools and clubs. It's her way of sharing her lifelong love of bees. It started a long time ago when I was little. Uh, my dad had beehives in, his, in our back garden when I was little. And he taught me all about bees and I loved helping him collecting the honey. And uh, I used to pull bees out of the pond that we had in the garden to save them. And then I had to oh, wait for a lot of long, long time before I had my own bees. When we moved from the Netherlands to Australia and finally settled in Adelaide, I decided it was a good time to start. Do you have a favourite bee? 
the blue banded bee I think is one of the most beautiful bees but I love my honey bees because I really enjoy working with them and each hive reacts very differently when you open them it depends on the queen who's in that's in there yeah I, I love being with the bees makes me calm how did you develop your knowledge about bees by reading, by getting advice. I've got a friend who's a beekeeper who's helped me a lot with getting into beekeeping. Uh, we work together still as well. Yeah, just reading and, and trialling, trial and error, just getting started and don't be afraid. Sandra says being a successful beekeeper also requires a sense of calm. In order to work well with a hive, you have to be calm. Bees pick up on when you're not calm. So you have to sort of centre yourself. It's like meditation almost. You really have to be mindful of what you do because one wrong tap off the box can set the bees off because they don't like the vibration and they might get upset. So it makes you work harder. So the more you focus and the more calm you are, the better it is. And the bees sort of get to know you too and they know that they can trust you, that you're not going to squash them and that you're not going to hurt them or you're not there to rob their hive. You're there to check, inspect and look after them. And how on earth did you end up with hives, beehives, on top of the Adelaide showground? How did that come about? Again, my friend that I work with, she was running this and she said, would you like to take over? So I said, yes, I'd love to, because uh, she got really, really busy with other bits in her business. Uh, so I took over and, um, yeah, we, well, she still helps me by pulling honey down because it's too heavy to do on your own. We've just got a lovely work relationship and friendship uh, that came from that as well. While there are some logistical challenges to tending to beehives on top of a roof, Zandra believes it's a good option for beekeeping in densely populated urban areas. It's more because we have less space to have hives in gardens. Different councils have different rules again, but your hive has to be, say, five metres away from a footpath. It has to be five metres away from the neighbour's house. With all the building that's happening in Adelaide, what I see in my street, you know, a one house block becomes now two to three houses in one block. Uh, so there is not a lot of space for the bees. So therefore the rooftop is great because you don't encroach on garden space. Not that I'm suggesting for people to put their hives on roofs because it's not safe of course but have businesses help in the city it's good good spot because bees do not bother anyone they can still forage and they pollinate the neighborhood which is what we really need to keep Adelaide or any city green. There are so many bees needed for people to survive yes. they're so essential. One, one third of every bite we eat is because of pollination by bees whether it be native or honeybees. How long do you think you'll keep your adventure of having a hive on, on uh, probably a hive with one of the best views? As long as I can. Yeah. yeah, as long as I'm able to and as long as I can find people to help me lift hives because it's, it's getting heavy. How heavy? <laughs> Depends. If you have a full box of honey, uh, it's between 40 to 60 kilos. Do you have to cheat the gym for that or is just the hives enough? Just the hives are enough. <laughs> Zandra Helbers, who's keeping bees at the Adelaide showgrounds and taking tours, showing her hives and answering questions about beekeeping. She spoke to our reporter, Eliza Burledge. You're listening to Country Breakfast on ABCRN. I'm Clint Jasper. Still to come, we'll meet the gardening family who are growing exotic and unusual herbs they've picked for their medicinal benefits and the rural community that's working together to fight feral cats. So these are the tools of the trade, as it were, Greg? These are the traps. 
that's the original sort of trap that we actually we used and we found that it just wasn't robust enough. And then we moved on to um, one of these and you can sort of see the difference in the, um, in the quality of the construction. It's, it's larger, it's built of much more high grade steel and um, it's pretty easy to set. And what's the size of a feral cat like compared to a domestic? We've caught them up to about seven kilos and um, I have to say that most of the cats that we've actually caught have been in really good physical condition, which means they're getting plenty of food. At his sheep farm near Kelso in northern Tasmania, Greg Squires is on the front line of a fight to remove feral cats from this landscape. He's part of a team of volunteers that have been trapping feral cats for about three years and he's confident their work is having an impact. We've caught 78 over the three year period and the demographics of those changed over that period of time. But we started off with mainly big males in the first year and in the last year we've got a lot more half grown stuff and females. So we figure we've taken a significant amount of cats out of the breeding population in the area around here. Hello, I'm Sarah Abbott. I'm here with Greg Squires, who's been showing me some of the traps they use to catch the feral cats, which have a reputation for decimating wildlife and spreading disease. Greg says it's been a real community effort to run the coordinated trapping program. Well, it's really a coalition of people. Um, started off with a local group in, the, in this area um, that saw a need to do something about it, and then that grew when we went to talk to um, Peter Voller from West Tamer Landcare um, and they came on board and then it evolved from there when we got a, um, a grant through Bridget Archer from the federal government to actually fund this project for a couple of years. We got support from the uh, West Tamer Council. Um, we've had support from the um, Tasmanian Farmers and Grazers Association. So there's been a whole lot of people involved and there's also been the local landowners who've been kind enough to actually let us trap on their property and also some of the local volunteers who've come along and given their time freely to actually go around these things because it takes about half a day to go around 25 cat traps, check them in the morning and reset them and that sort of thing. So it's a, if you're gonna run a six week program, you've got to do that every day day after day and so it's a pretty fair commitment. So you that's see, on your property plus a number of others? Yeah, yeah, we, we tend to trap an area and then we'll trap it for sort of six, seven days and then we'll move that whole line to somewhere else. And around here we've done Greens Beach, the Kelso area, behind the shoreline between Greens Beach and Kelso, we've been over at Badgerhead, we've been in the National Park um, and we've done some work over at Clarence Point. Have any of those areas been particularly bad for cats? Yeah, Greens Beach. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, behind, there's a road at Greens Beach that runs from the shop behind the sand dunes and along that area we would probably have caught the most feral cats in, in a small area, if you understand what I mean. And every year we go there, there's more cats. You mentioned, Greg, that, you know, setting the traps, checking the traps, all of that takes time out of your day. That's an investment, as you pointed out. What made you put your hand up in the first place to put such time aside and get involved? Um, I started to see cats around here during the, in the daylight, actual feral cats actually on the property in the daylight. And um, I sort of figured that if we were seeing them out and about during the day, then there were a lot of them about. And, I mean... This is a sheep farm 
and we make our money out of wool and, and, and prime lambs. And the more sh sheep you can get on the ground at lambing and keep them alive, then the better off you are. And the percentages are all affected by Toxo and Campo, which come from cats. Both of those problems basically result in abortions in sheep or weak lambs which don't survive birth. Um, so if you're going to talk about it in hard and fast dollars from a farming point of view, then, you know, if you can get rid of the feral cats off your place, then you're going to reduce the amount of those diseases that are around and, and you're going to um, end up with a greater lambing percentage and at the end of the day, that's dollars in your back pocket. So if, you, if you're brutal about it, that's it. But, I mean, the, the other thing with me is, I mean, I've, I've lived here all my life and, um, you know, I like the environment and the native animals and that sort of thing. And um, well, I've noticed that in my lifetime, the eastern barred bandicoot basically has disappeared from this area. And, um, and I think the cats have probably wiped them out. Greg is catching a feral cat in a trap a bit of a no-brainer or are there tricks to know to get it right? Oh, no, there's definite skills. And um, as part of this project, we hired a guy called John Bowden, who's a um, very experienced trapper from down the northwest coast. He came in and he's basically trained myself and the other volunteers who've been involved in the cat trapping, how to set the, how to set the traps, where to set them. Um, the best bait, believe it or not, is roast chicken. Um, that works remarkably well. Um, one thing I'll say is that we've only caught, of those, we said we've got 78 ferals, well we've only caught about two or three domestic cats and we've released all of those and we have scanners which allow us to actually check all the cats for microchips so we do check very thoroughly to make sure we've only got ferals. <laughs> you get a bit known for being the cat trapper or being involved in this sort of stuff and the number of people that come to me and say I've seen cats running across the road at Kayena. I've seen cats running across the road at Roella. You know, I, I drive there, I see them in the morning and I see them in the evening and that sort of thing. Is there anything we can do about them? Well, the bottom line is we're flat out doing what we're doing around this area. And there's where you get that, well, who's actually leading the push to do something, coordinating this across the whole state, municipal area, whatever. I think on a statewide basis we really need a coordinated approach to actually trying to remove some of these things from out of the actual natural area. got dragon fruit, irises which are flowering now and they're quite beautiful, purple irises, lemongrass, some dogbane ground cover, deters cats and dogs from digging in your garden apparently. It doesn't affect my dog, she, she, <laughs> she goes anywhere wherever she chooses. And then we'll go in here, this is one of our first greenhouse. On a small farm in this picturesque spot at Tomawin Mountain, straddling the Queensland-New South Wales border near Tweet Heads, Lynn Gallagher is growing plants and herbs that are a bit different to what you find in your big-name nurseries. She's choosing them for their medicinal qualities. Because that's what we wanted when we came here. We wanted to plant medicinal plants and we found it very difficult 
to find them. You can't often find what we've got. Hello, I'm Cathy Border. I'm having a walk through the garden with Lynn and her daughter Katie. The farm is a retirement project for Lynn, who bought this land with her husband Tim seven years ago when she wrapped up a career working in finance. The plan was to sell jams at farmers markets. Now that's blossomed into a family business growing medicinal herbs. And there's a good chance that she's growing something you may never have heard of. I don't know if you've heard of borage. No. That's beautiful, beautiful blue flowers. The bees just absolutely love it. Yeah, we use it in our teas as well. You can't really get borage flowers or the leaves anywhere dried. So we, that's why we grow it all for our teas. Only from Iran, I think you can get. And the bees, like I only pick it of an afternoon because we let the bees have it in the morning and then we pick the flowers in the afternoon. It's covered in bees, it's beautiful. And the other one we have is Herb Robert. I don't know if you've heard of that. That's no. quite a medicinal little shrub. It gets little pink flowers on it, but that's very good to eat. A bit of Herb Robert every day. Good cancer prevention, that one. Oh, and we have so many more. We have Nepotella, which is similar to oregano. It was the original oregano, I believe. What sort of a reaction do you get? Because as you say, you do quite a few markets. Yeah. What sort of questions do people ask you about it all? They just love it. Most of them know. A lot of people up here are very knowledgeable about medicinal herbs. Like a lot of them know what they are. And we do like a pretty involved plant tag on all of our plants. We make our own plant tags and we have the botanical names. So if anyone's unsure what to do, they, I tell them to research that. A lot of times I don't put all the medicinal uses on it because it would go on forever like a big story. And we usually include the scientific name as well as the average name because we've found that our plants can be called many different things depending on where they're sold as well. Because we have so many different ranges of mint, it helps to have the scientific name and the genus on there as well. You started from scratch. How would you describe what you knew about medicinal herbs when you lived in Wollongong? Nothing. Compared to now at Tomawin. Nothing. <laughs> I knew basic garden plants. I always had lavender and rosemary and all those herbs, really? culinary herbs. So I knew about all of those. I loved the flowering plants. I liked neat edges, you know, everything beautiful. And then we came up here and, and my son helped with the gardens and I said, oh, very good job. It's a little bit messy, isn't it? And he goes, well, that's permaculture. You plant everything together and you do chop and drop builds up the soil like some gardens we haven't even put soil in we've just used pigeon pea and chop and drop to build up the soil in that garden like once we get a new plant and then we research it and it's just amazing what herbs can do and we also do a lot of different spinach as well varieties that you don't see anywhere else so can you tell me the names of some of those um, some of the malabar greens we call it the salon spinach mushroom plant Yes, I got one of those. Yes, beautiful spinach, that one. A lot of vitamins in that one. Um, we've got the Warrigal Greens. The Egyptian spinach only comes on in spring, but that's a lovely one too. And the Okinawa. So that's a purple leaf spinach. It grows crazy here. So. I'm gathering that's Japanese or something, is uh, it? Or? Japanese, yeah. yeah. So that grows crazy. And the Brazilian spinach. So we've got different varieties of spinach and they all have their own time of being an abundance. So we just harvest when we can and we use it and we eat it every day and we make green drinks out of it. And What would you sell the most of? Well, it varies from different markets. We sell a, always sell a lot of spinach, the different varieties of spinach that we have. At the moment, everyone's just restocking all their culinary herbs because of the flood. 
all of that was lost. Medicinal herbs, of course, because they're difficult to find elsewhere. And some people just like flowering plants, and flowers are great for the bees. So everyone's interested in um, bees and the flowering plants. So some plants double up, like the Tulsi with the flowers, plus you can eat it. So there's a lot of that too. Do you Family call farm. yourselves herb farmers, medicinal herb farmers? What do you call yourself? Oh, we're just gardeners. We just love everything. Planting new varieties, learning how they grow, how to use them. Uh, that's what we really enjoy doing. That was Lynn Gallagher, who started her second career growing herbs for medicinal use. She spoke to reporter Cathy Border. Before that, Sarah Abbott found out about efforts to trap feral cats in northern Tasmania. And you can see more on those stories and all of the stories on today's program. Just head online to the ABCRN homepage and look for Country Breakfast under Programs. Academics and farmers are increasingly concerned about the spread of exotic diseases as extreme weather events sweep across the world. As the climate warms, these diseases and their host insects, bats and birds are posing new threats to Australian agriculture, as Hannah Jose reports. Dr Prasad Paradka is Senior Research Scientist at CSIRO. He says there are more cases of these diseases being reported from Southeast Asia. So we are seeing an increase in detection and uh, increased threat. And uh, that's because of sort of several factors, and one of which is climate change, which is a main driver of uh, this increased incidence and um, geographic distribution of these diseases. There are some direct effects of climate change, which leads to, um, and these are things like extreme events, so cyclones, which can blow an infected insect. Um, and bring the disease into this new geographic area like Australia. And once it's here, then local insects can transmit it. Mm. Um, And this has been shown in case of smaller insects like biting midges or mosquitoes, which have been shown to be transported over long distance. But the other part is um, climate change also means increased average temperatures, uh, which uh, can increase the geographic distribution of those insects, like exotic insects, which can come into Australia and uh, make, a, make a place here. Dr Michael Ward is Chair of Veterinary Public Health at Sydney Uni. He told Michael Condon that climate change's effects can be seen clearly in particular areas. Probably the two areas where it's the clearest are vector-borne diseases, so mosquitoes and midges, and also parasitic diseases, so, you know, the worm-type diseases. So both of those probably do have, you know, the the changing climate would have a direct um, impact, essentially sort of larger populations of either mosquitoes, midges or also worms as well, surviving longer, um, pathogens sort of reproducing faster. People have thought for quite some time uh, mosquito-borne type diseases, lumpy skin disease, and then in the human field, the uh, Japanese encephalitis outbreaks that we've seen. The other thing too, were Hendra disease, that seems to be moving south as well and the bats are moving. Is that is that the climate uh, pushing the bats further south? Yeah, so that would be an example of this sort of indirect effect where climate might affect habitat and particularly, um, and that's known to be a cause of disease emergence and disease spillover, so things like Hendra virus, um, where the habitats change. So it could be climate driven where they're moving moving south. It could be sort of land clearing or change in horticulture or, you know, El Nino impacts, drought impacts, all those sort of things that then shift the bat distribution and then we get that spillover occurring. 
Dr. Chris Parker is the National Lumpy Skin Preparedness Coordinator with the Department of Agriculture. He says the disease is not a big concern for Australia yet, but it could be very soon. Lumpy skin is not close enough yet for the vector to blow into Australia, but if it's to spread further east and south within Indonesia, then it would be getting close enough to worry about. The disease is actually transmitted by biting insects and the concern would be that in a big cyclone or a big weather event that those biting insects that are infected with the disease may well blow into the north of Australia. Edwina Beveridge is a pork producer and director of Belantyre Farms in southwest New South Wales. She told David Clawton the arrival of Japanese encephalitis earlier this year was a huge shock. Interestingly, it's not the mosquitoes moving that created the problem they believe it's migratory birds that have been infected with Japanese encephalitis then fly, flying further south and then a mosquito bites Japan, the infected bird and can then pass that on to the pigs or people in our area. Right. And were you surprised by that? Yes. Well, we've never had... I mean, Japanese encephalitis has been around for a long time. It's been in a lot of Asia and it's not a new uh, problem to have in a pig farm. But it is new to us because we've uh, always been too far south for that, you know, that bug to spread down this way. But there are cases now in Victoria and South Australia, I hear. Yes, yes, interesting. All the way, I mean, it's never been, it hasn't been in Queensland before either. So it will be really interesting to see what happens in the future. You know, was it a one-hit wonder or are we going to be impacted again this year? We think it's quite likely we will be impacted because it's so wet. Some studies suggest there could be a risk of Nipah virus too as bats, which spread the disease, have been recorded moving between Malaysia, Indonesia and Australia. In 1998, Malaysia had a serious outbreak of Nipah, killing over 100 people. Thanks to Hannah Joyce for that report. The number of electric vehicles on city streets and topping up at recharging stations is becoming increasingly common. But when you turn off the main road and onto a farm, it's clear that diesel is still king and set to remain that way for the foreseeable future. Diesel-powered tractors and headers are still coming off production lines in Europe and the US with no indication of when they'll switch to electric technology. The farm sector is interested in clean energy, but which source is the best fit for heavy machinery in primary industries? Mark Bennett has been looking into the options. At the Newdigate Machinery Field Days in WA's southeastern wheat belt... Vintage tractor restorer Rusty Lee hand cranks a 1945 Fordson to life. Almost a century on since these workhorses were on farms, the modern computer-driven tractors and harvesters to produce the world's food are still powered by fossil fuels. I can see a lot of benefits of, 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 the, of the new technology, particularly with hydrogen, I think, for our big machines. Newdigate farmer Wally Newman owns a number of vintage machines. The former chairman of CBH doesn't see electricity replacing diesel in the short term. I can see the oil industry being around well, well out of my life and, and probably at least another 20 to 40 years where a lot of these implements are going to require petroleum products. Agricultural equipment manufacturers are developing smaller electrified tractors, but electric power is not yet seen as a workable alternative 
in Broadacre Farming. Um, it's estimated that for a harvester of 400, 500 horsepower harvester, you might need a, an eight-ton battery. John Henchy heads up the Farm Machinery and Industry Association. Uh, well, there are two challenges for that. Is One is it's extra waste you don't really need in the harvester. And uh, the other thing is where are you going to put it? And then, of course, how are you going to charge it? Out here where machines run day and night during seeding and harvest, cubic inches are king. And right now the push to electrify passenger and some larger on-road transports is not gaining traction in the wheat belt. Uh, the next 20 years I can't see how we go to batteries and make it work. Ethel Kennedy sells European equipment with strict Euro 5 emission controls to reduce exhaust pollution. I cannot see how we in Australia can use electricity to run our, our agricultural sector. Mining are doing it to some extent. Our infrastructure through the whole of WA Wheatbelt is struggling to run our houses and our workshops. The amount of solar and wind power that would be required to, to run machines like this, you know, this is a small header, it's running 530 horsepower and spends its whole days on its knees. I can't see how we can get battery packs or supply those battery packs to keep these in the field. Currently, Australia has no emission regulations on off-road equipment, nor are there any signals coming from Canberra what's planned for the future. It's an interesting question because I don't think anyone knows. Uh, like we say, there is no clear signals. The technologies are sort of not there. We hear a lot, a lot about lithium batteries. Uh, if we have a look at the production of lithium batteries, it's filthy. It's uh, worse than anything we build for agriculture. And we do build some dirty chemicals for ag, but the lithium battery is, is very filth, filthy and the disposal of it, they have none. Meantime, the consumption of diesel across Australia is increasing. In 2021, we burned more than 25.6 billion litres of the fuel. No manufacturers are yet to offer Australian farmers an alternative fuel system for big horsepower tractors and headers. We're not non-believers, we all want clean energy, we want to go forward, so it probably comes down to cleaning up what we're doing, which is what the industry is doing. With mining looking at hydrogen as a possible solution, agriculture could be next to adopt the technology. The big challenge for hydrogen is storage and transportability. Once, once that can be satisfied, I think uh, that's obviously an option. What about biofuels? We've been there and we've done that. Yeah, biofuels has been around for um, well, the last 15 years or so. It's had some degrees of success, but very, very small. It, it really hasn't taken off. The switch to alternatives will happen when the business case adds up. Jason Wells, sales manager at Pharma Centre. Farmers are very progressive sort of people, especially in the area we're in. I'm sure once you know the technology is available, it will be you know quite well used if there's efficiencies and things to be gained out of it. I don't think there's too much push for it. You hear every now and again it comes up, but um, you know I'm sure it'll come in the future anyway. A solution perhaps for the next generation of farmers to find. There you go. Mark Bennett with that report. 
In a major step for the Murray-Darling Basin plan, the Federal Water Minister has announced that the first plan for how New South Wales will share water in the river system has been approved. The New South Wales government has been criticised heavily by both the Basin Inspector General and the government for missing deadlines to produce the so-called water resource plans, meaning breaches to the Basin plan could not yet be enforced. Warwick Long spoke to the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, who says it's a start, but there is more work to do. Well, this is really exciting news. Uh, New South Wales, of course, is responsible for delivering 20 out of 33 water resource plans. And until now, uh, it's had zero accredited um, out of those water resource plans. I'm very, very happy that the New South Wales government has submitted the first of their 20 water resource plans. And I've um, accredited that plan. I've accepted the advice of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority that the plan um, meets uh, the requirements uh, expected. So the, the first plan you have stacks yeah. up. Yes, well, the, the, uh, uh, absolutely. And I think this is a really important step forward because unless we have these water resource plans in place, the Inspector General of Water Compliance can't monitor whether um, the New South Wales government's doing the right thing, um, that we're on track to meet the objectives uh, in New South Wales. And I guess one of the frustrations is that these plans were supposed to be in place by 2019 and here we are in 2022, we're just accrediting the first of them. But uh, it is a, a big step forward and uh, I think the um, New South Wales Water Minister Kevin Anderson should be congratulated for taking on the challenge that his predecessors um, haven't delivered on. What region is this water resource plan for? This is a water resource plan for the northern part of the basin. It's the New South Wales Border Rivers Alluvium Water Resource Plan. So it's a groundwater plan um, that sets rules for water extraction in the northern borders rivers, the northern border rivers region. So this is one out of the the twenty you require. Do you know the time frame for the future water resource plans? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll get the rest of the plans uh, by the end of the calendar year. Uh, and of course, these are very large and complex documents. They'll take some time for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority to assess um, those water resource plans. They'll make a recommendation to me about whether to accredit or not to accredit the plans. And so next year, we'll be going through the, the process of um, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority assessing the plans and then I'll be deciding on their advice whether to accredit them or not. Critics in New South Wales government circles in previous years, every time this was brought up as an issue, the state hasn't been compliant and have said they've provided these plans in the past and they've been rejected due to things like formatting issues from the, the Basin Authority. Is there any truth to those claims? Uh, look, I, I think that's a, a pretty convenient uh, argument from previous New South Wales ministers who haven't wanted to uh, submit these plans because once you've got a plan in place, you can have the Inspector General of Water Compliance checking on the plan and whether it's being implemented or not. And uh, I mean, to be fair, I really do think um, a big part of the problem has been with the previous federal government. Uh, I think for a long time, you've had federal water ministers who've seen it as their job to prevent the delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan rather than to deliver on it. There's been a lot of brown tape tying up the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in previous years. 
And now what what you see is cooperation across um, political lines, a, a Commonwealth government and a New South Wales government um, prepared to work together to deliver on the plan. Tanya Plibersek is with you. Minister for Water was speaking today as the Minister is addressing the, the Murray-Darling Association's conference. Um, Minister, there has been a lot of criticism from, from state governments here in Victoria as well as, as independents and so forth throughout the basin about the lack of ministerial council meetings for the basin. Is there plans for a ministerial council meeting anytime soon? Yep, sure is. We're looking at the uh, mid-October for the next um, minister's meeting, and that'll be a really great opportunity uh, to recommit to um, the really important work of making sure that uh, the river system is healthy and resilient for the future. I mean, you know, there's um, plenty of rain in most parts of the Murray-Darling Basin system at the moment. We've even got flooding in parts of the system, but we know one thing for certain in Australia that uh, there might be rain today. I'm sure as anything, there'll be drought tomorrow. And we need to um, think about not, not just the next year or two, but the next 10 and 20 and 50 years, how this river system is going to survive in a climate that's changing. That'll be the first meeting between ministers in the basin for nearly two years, the first formal meeting. Has that been too long? Look, I, I think, uh, you know, I go back to what I said a bit earlier. Uh, the previous federal government um, was interested in preventing the delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan rather than meeting its commitments. And I, I think uh, the lack of ministerial council meeting is just, you know, one element of that. It's just one example. The 450 gigalitres, which was, was added to the plan when South Australia signed on to it, has become one of the latest battlegrounds within the plan itself. The independent member for Shepparton, which is a state independent, says the 450 gigalitres getting that and being able to deliver it through the system is, is not possible. You clearly, going off previous statements, don't believe that to be true. Is there going to be a fight over the 450 gigalitres and just how to get it and also how to use it in the basin? Well, it's an essential part of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So we need to deliver that 450 gigalitres of additional environmental water that was a condition for South Australia signing onto the plan. So it's a uh, non-negotiable how, how, for you? No, it, it's uh, it's not negotiable. Uh, how we get there is something that we need to talk about. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek speaking to Warwick Long. Minister Plibersek made the announcement at the Murray-Darling Association's conference in Albury on Wednesday. And it's crunch time for the Basin Plan. That final comment from the Minister is really significant. How we get there is something we need to talk about. The Productivity Commission was warning all the way back in 2018 that there were some really risky projects underpinning the water recovery effort and the additional four 150 gigalitres has been resisted by the upstream states for many years now. My thanks to Kath Sullivan, Kath McAllen and Richard Gervin for bringing Country Breakfast together this week and I hope you enjoy the rest of the wonderful Saturday morning lineup on ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.